Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In the right and the goods, Ross, about halfway into the, the chapter that you're looking at, says, the moral convictions of thoughtful and well-educated people are the data of ethics. The data means, you know, the sort of starting points that we use to, to make sense out of things. What does he mean? Well, think about when you handle data in other circumstances, other fields, other disciplines. The data is what you're observing, right? That's what it means, literally, data, that which is given, comes from the Latin word for, for giving. And it's what is given to you. What, when you go out and you gather data, you're looking for what's going on. Now, what would that be in moral life? What is the, the data of moral life? You guys have been gathering it for a long time, whether you realized it or not. Every time that you, know, you got into some sort of situation where it could go this way or it could go this way, and you asked yourself, what's the right thing to do? And you consulted your feelings about it or some principles about it. Maybe you actually did the wrong thing, and then you realized it was the wrong thing later. That ever happened to you? That's happened to me a lot of times. Still does, every once in a while. What else? Adults telling you things along the way? Knock that off. You know, when they say knock that off, and you feel that kind of twinge, or depending on how they phrased it to you, and you know, what else they went along with, maybe you actually like, you know, got out of the got out of the room so you didn't get hit or anything like that. You were actually learning about moral life. Now you might have been mislearning things, right? If your parents had the might makes right philosophy, whatever I say goes, you know, you're basically just here to satisfy my whims and needs because I'm the powerful one and you're not, you know, in power, they probably screwed you up. Right? You've seen kids like that? Have you known adults like that? Still know any adults like that these days? Where you look at them and you say, wow, that person had a terrible upbringing. Somebody really screwed that kid up. On the other hand, you guys recognize this, I think. When you would go to other people's houses and visit, did you ever compare them with your own? How, how did it turn out? Favorably, unfavorably? Did you feel that your, you know, your household was really squared away and the other people, they were getting it wrong? Or sometimes you say, man, I kind of like the way things go over there a bit better than, than the way things go here. And it's not just because, you know, they got candy or got to play games or things like that, or people talked nice to each other, you know, and didn't yell or, or things like that. It was probably in part, at least at some points, you're like, that dad actually helps out with, with homework. What's wrong with mine? Shouldn't he be helping me out with that or taking an interest in it? Pick whatever else you like. You know, that mom, when she has to divide up good things between us kids, she doesn't play favorites. As a matter of fact, she even gives me an equal share, even though I'm just a guest. That would be actually learning about moral life. And Ross, so this is where Ross is beginning. He thinks that the way in which we, we come to know these things is not so much by moral theories. And it's more by looking at the way in which we actually do think and feel and, and act. Not just everybody, because there's some people who are screwed up, and you don't want to consult them, right? If you think of anybody offhand who would make a terrible moral instructor, you know, maybe somebody in the news recently, anybody come to mind? You guys watch TV, right? Stuff on the internet, at least. Anything going on that, in the last 10 years, 
that you could say, wow, that person should not be in charge of kids and their moral development. Who would you pick for the prize for that? Yeah. Sandusky? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there'd be a glaring instance, right? And actually, he was in charge of kids. That's part of what, what made it so problematic. And he, 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 like, fooled people for years and years and years. That's why people felt betrayed. And some people actually felt that they had a duty to defend the guy. And then after a while, once, you know, more and more information started coming out, then they started thinking, eh, maybe I shouldn't defend this guy. Maybe I should actually be, be criticizing him. Yeah, I mean, if you imagine growing up in a household where not only that sort of thing was going on, but it was being presented as if it was the norm, the way things ought to be. How screwed up would that make you? So you wouldn't actually want to consult that person's moral intuitions. Um, you know, a thoughtful and well-educated people. So it's not just any, you know, Joe Blow on the street. It's going to be people who have, you know, actually given some thought to this. You look to people whose lives seem to be fairly well squared away, and Ross is willing to say you, you can't actually know who, who is and who isn't until you scratch the surface. But you look at those people, and then you see where they are and what they have, have to think about these sort of things. And we'll come back to that in a moment. I want to touch on some of the other theories that he talks about. And he says, well, they're not doing this. So he talks about egoism, and he talks about hedonism, and utilitarianism. And he thinks that each one of these, there's something wrong with it as a theory. It doesn't jive with the way in which we actually <coughs> think about what we ought to do, our duties. right? And so, you know, as we go through this, think about whether this makes sense for you. What does egoism say you ought to do? What are your duties as an egoist? Your self-interest. Yeah. What is like your self-interest? Like make decisions with uh, like your own benefit. Yeah. Very good. So you should consult your own self-interest or, or benefit and pay attention to that and say everybody else is going to forget about that and do whatever it takes to say maximize your satisfaction of your your interests. And so he says that can't be right. I mean, people do behave that way, right? We know some people who, who act that way. And we actually know some people who talk that way. Interestingly, sometimes the people who talk that way, you watch their lives, and you find out actually they're not egoists. They're, they're helping people out on the side, which they shouldn't be doing, you know, even when it doesn't benefit them. And he says, you know, the theory comes to grief over the fact that it stares us in the face. A great part of duty, a great part of what we feel obliged to do, what we sense ourselves to have an obligation to do, consists in an observance of the rights and a furtherance of the interests of others. Now that could be compatible with being an egoist, right? You could be an egoist and you want to be nice to people so they're nice to you. But then he says, whatever the cost to ourselves may be. So when we feel ourselves under an obligation, this is how you can tell people who actually have a sense of obligation, those who don't. People who have a sense of obligation think that whatever the cost is to them, if they have an obligation to another person, they're supposed to do that. They may not fulfill it, but they, they at least have a sense that that's what I ought to be doing. So egoism doesn't really work. It doesn't really fit the way in which we, we tend to think about things in the real world. Even though there are a lot of people who act like egoists, they oftentimes recognize that they're doing the wrong thing. That's why they try to hide their actions. That's why they try to argue that they're actually good for everybody else. Right? Hedonism and utilitarianism, his criticisms of these have to do with the issue of pleasure. 
is pleasure the only good thing? So, you know, think back to when we were talking about hedonism. For I think for some of you, you had that aha moment where you said, yeah, this makes sense. Now I finally get it. Everything really is about pleasure and pain. Some of you said, yeah, but what about this? What about this? This doesn't seem to be introducible to, to pleasure and pain. And Ross says, you know, unless we want to understand pleasure in a really, really attenuated sense, you know, where it almost doesn't mean anything. Is pleasure really the only good that, that we ought to be thinking about, the only thing that we, we seek? Or are there other things that we value? And he talks about two things. And then he talks about another one in another chapter. And he leaves out something that you guys have brought up a lot. Relationships. Are relationships just about pleasure for you? Or do you, do you see a value in at least some of your relationships that goes beyond the pleasure? What do you think? What would you say? As soon as somebody stops being pleasurable or, or likely to be pleasurable in the future, you cut them off? Is that how you guys behave? I doubt it. There may be a few people who you said, this person is a pain, literally a pain, and I'm not going to hang around with them anymore. Well, those people are probably not that close to you, right? Who, who are people that are close to you that are sometimes a pain and at, maybe at this point you don't necessarily derive a lot of pleasure from, but you feel yourself... You feel that your relationship is worth something. Hopefully not your boyfriend or girlfriend, or husband or wife. But that could happen. I mean, if you make a commitment to somebody, and you say for better or for worse, and then things turn out for worse, they get horribly maimed and can't really you know, do much with you, and your life with them is mostly just taking care of them, which is not a lot of fun, you'd still say it's important to do that, wouldn't you? Or if you're looking at somebody else in that situation, that they you know, sort of say, see you later, no longer pleasurable for me, you would say there's something wrong with that the action, that person, don't you? Who in your life currently do you find to be kind of a pain? And you, maybe you wish things were different, but they're not. And you don't even know if they're going to be in the future. But yet you feel that your relationship is worth something. Family? Which family members? The crazy cousin who you only see once a year? Probably not. Who then? Parents. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people find their parents to be a pain. But they say, hey, this is my mom, this is my dad, this is, this is worth something. Uh, you know, from a hedonist perspective, that doesn't make sense. Maybe brothers and sisters. You know, if you have a screw-up brother, a screw-up sister. They're still your brother or sister, aren't they? Sometimes you still love them, no matter you know, what, what sort of things they do. And you can think about other cases like this as well. Utilitarianism is kind of a strange bird because it's saying, you know, everybody's pleasures have to be looked at equally. And that, that's kind of good because it gets us away from, you know, straight out egoism, he says. But again, you know, is, is that all there is, is pleasure? In addition to relationships, which Ross doesn't actually talk about in this thing, he says moral cultivation, what he calls virtue, character. That's worth something to you, isn't it? Isn't your character valuable to you? Isn't the character of your friends valuable to you? Don't you have some people who you're friends with because they're, I don't know what the female equivalent would be for this, but we can think about that. What's, what's the female equivalent of a stand-up guy? You guys all know that phrase, right? A stand-up guy, that's somebody who's loyal, who you can count on, who actually has good character, you can rely on them to do the right thing, you can trust your family with them. That's valuable, right? And that's not just about pleasure. But what else? Intellectual development. Well, you guys are engaged in. Now, you know, granted, a lot of the, this class is, you know, for you guys a means to an end, right? Graduation, we've talked about this many times. But some of the stuff that you guys are studying, when you have that moment where it clicks, you say, 
yeah, now this makes sense. And I know this from a lot of your papers. That's intellectual development. You've acquired something. You're at a, a higher level than you were before. And is that always pleasant? What do you think? Studying pleasant? How many of you like studying? But it pays off, doesn't it? You have something that's, that's yours that you can hold on to after that. So these don't really work. He talks about G. Moore's theory, but I'm going to skip over that as well. And then he talks about Kant, Kantian deontology. And you would say, well, you know, Ross is a deontologist, Kant's a deontologist. They should be on the same page, right? And they should be in complete agreement. What's the problem with Kant? Well, Kant, when he's talking about duty, he tries to reduce everything to one principle. He, he's got this thing called the categorical imperative, which we're going to look at in the near future. And Kant thinks that we're um, generally trying to reduce everything to what he calls perfect duties, duties that are completely obligatory upon us. And we can distinguish those from imperfect duties, which they're not optional, but, but they, they don't have the same sort of priority to them. So, for example, Kant would say you should never tell a lie. Never, ever, 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 ever. And we'll see why when we look at Kant in the categorical imperative. But are there situations in which you probably ought to tell a lie? I mean, the utilitarians would say, yeah, just look at you know, what benefits the largest amount of people. If the killer is uh, at the door of the nursery and says, I want to kill some babies, and you could tell them, hey, the maternity ward is on the other side of the hospital, and that'll give you enough time to call security, is that a good lie to tell? What do you guys think? I'd tell it. And the utilitarian would tell it too. Kant would say, no, even though it's going to bring about bad consequences, you still shouldn't lie. Ross would say, you got to look at what your actual duties are. Some duties in particular cases are more stringent than other duties. It's not so simple as having one principle by which we can derive everything. So how do we actually get a sense of what our, what our duties are and what we ought to do? He says, when a plain man fulfills a promise because he thinks he ought to, seems clear that he does so with no thought of its total consequences. Most people, when they're you know, carrying out moral reasoning, do they, do they actually sit down and say, now how would every single stakeholder be affected by this? Do they fill out a worksheet similar to the one that I gave you for uh, utilitarianism? Now, we might do something a little bit like that in some circumstances. Do we uh, consult the categorical imperative? Do we think to ourselves, Am I acting in such a way that the maximum of my action can be made into a universal law of nature that I can will? Probably not, right? There's something more basic than that. But because of the fact that it's more basic, it ends up being what we call pluralistic. You see that word, what do you think you ought to think about? Plural means more than one. There's going to be more than one mode of obligation, more than one kind of thing that we ought to do. And so Ross is going to call these prima facies, and this is his main contribution to moral theory, the way that people look at him today. There's a lot more in his book, but this is probably the most important notion that he puts on the table. And this is the one that I think that a lot of you can relate to quite well. I know that you can because you're like other students, right? And other students tend to tend to get this as well, in part because um, it makes good sense because he's focusing on our ordinary moral conceptions. One of the other criticisms that Ross has, all of these that I want to 
Well, not necessarily of egoism, but of utilitarianism and conscious deontology is the fact that duties are duties are personal. You have duties not just because you're a human being, and all human beings have duties, you know, of a certain sort, but because you're that guy, you're that one, you're your father's daughter, you're your mother's son, down and down the line, right? You guys have duties to each other as classmates that didn't exist before you sat down in this classroom. Like he says, these theories tend to unduly simplify our relations to our fellows. They say, in effect, that the only morally significant relation which neighbors stand to me is, you know, being beneficiaries or, you know, other ways of putting it. And this relation of being a possible beneficiary of my action, that's important. But what else? He says... Other human beings stand to me in the relation of promisee to promiser, people that you make promises to, of creditor to debitor, of wife to husband, of child to parent, of friend to friend, of fellow countryman to fellow countryman, and the like. And each of these relations, he says, is the foundation of a prima facie duty, which is more or less incumbent upon me according to the circumstances of the case. So the fact that you exist in this fabric of, of concrete relationships that are part of who you are, right? You're so-and-so's daughter, and she's not. And she's somebody else's daughter. And, you know, you guys could be connected with each other, study partners or something like that, and that would create other obligations. Friends, you could become friends. I suppose your families could be connected by marriage in some, some you know, fashion, but you're never going to have the same parents, right? You're never going to have the same duties to the same people. You can compare your duties to each other. I feel like I'm not, I've not been a good son because, you know, I look at him and he's done so much more for, for his parents than I have, things I should have been doing. But those are still his parents. That's his duty. That's his relationship to them. Mine is to my own, right? And duties are intensely personal like Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.